This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I'm Norman Lau, and the Chief and Mr. Ataz are on assignment this week. They're taking care of Schmedlap and Umpty Scratch because Schmedlap has busted into the mess hall and, for some strange reason, stole all the Romulan ale once again. So the Chief's on that. Mr. Ataz is trying to take care of everything through time travel and the Atavacron to return all things to normal. But until they come back, I have the best special <laughs> guests for you this evening. What? I have my sisters from mm-hmm. other misters. <laughs> Love it. You have heard them before on Trek FM on various shows like The Ready Room and, of course, recently on The 602 Club with Matthew Rushing. They usually join uh, myself and Matthew on that show. We have Alice and Megan from Educating Geeks. Alice, Megan, how are you? Good. Good. Good Excited to be on a new show over here at Trek FM. I know. I'm on a roll. I did uh, commentary Trek Stars. Is that right? Yeah, commentary mm-hmm. tech stars recently. And uh, now I'm doing this one for the first time. So that's pretty cool. Uh, so, so you being cool. back with us to like the 1966 land, you know, and love it. We're here the year our, I was born. We're here with our velour, <laughs> wearing the cooler <laughs> uniforms. That's right. You know, I have my array on. I'm good. Nice. Nice. <laughs> now, for all the folks out there that are listening to Standard Orbit that aren't um, familiar with the mission statement from Educating Geeks, the reason why I wanted to have you both on is because you guys do a great job in trying to bring people into all different types of fandom. So this is the first time they'll be hearing you. So let us uh, drop some knowledge on us here and uh, let us know what the EG is all about. Yeah. So, I mean, Norm kind of had it right there. The whole thing that we are about is bringing new people into our fandoms. Um, You know, if you are hanging out with your geek friends and someone says, hey, I've never seen Highlander, we don't believe in revoking your friend's geek cards because... They've been too busy enjoying other things. We think you should invite them over and watch Highlander together and induct them into your fandom. So that's what we're all about at Educating Geeks. And we cover all kinds of things. We do all the Trek. Um, Our host, Bree, does Star Trek every single week. She's watching Star Trek for the first time. She's on season three of Next Generation right now. Um, And then, you know. That's a good season. That's a good season. I know she's in for a treat. She really enjoyed the second season. Um, And, you know, with Norman and Matthew, we've done Dune 
twice now. We've done two iterations of Dune. We talked about Highlander, like I said earlier. So, uh, you know, we hope you guys will check us out, educatinggeeks.com. Try and make it easy. And uh, yeah, we get a new podcast every week. And uh, also a drinking game podcast to cover every single topic that we cover. So uh, it's a lot of fun. Now, Alice, how long have you guys been doing Educating Geeks for? Since 2012. We're in our fourth season. Yeah, we just, uh, our anniversary is coming up right now. Yeah. yeah. And how many episodes do you guys do a season? Uh, it varies. I think our first season we did 23. I think this year we're doing 18, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. We started out with next gen level seasons. <laughs> it was a lot of work. <laughs> now, I remember looking at your guys' website before, before um, we all got together doing all this fun stuff. And how does the content get generated on your show? Do you find somebody in your group that just brings something up? It's like, I have not seen something, therefore we're going to do a show about it. Or do you guys set the schedule and try and find people who you reach out to and say, have you seen this? If they said no, you kind of go that way. It's a mix. We definitely have uh, things where, I mean, sort of one of the genesis of the show is one of our regular geek hosts, Cassie, had never seen uh, the original Star Wars films. Uh, And we were all in shock, frankly, uh, and decided that we really, really needed to have her watch those films so that we could all have a conversation about it. Uh, So in that case, it was sort of a you know, what seems like a glaring absence of somebody's geek knowledge. But in other cases, uh, we look for things that are having an anniversary or that have other, some sort of a a tie-in in terms of a new season coming out. Uh, We recently did Orphan Black season one in anticipation of season four starting. So it's a real mix of how we find our content. Yeah. But it is, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) I was going to say, it is, it, it, it is, easy to find for the most part people who haven't experienced something the only time we run into trouble is when we go back to the 80s frankly Um, (laughs) we're all like 80s or 90s kids so most of us have seen a lot of that stuff Uh, yeah yeah but that's okay too because there's listeners out there that haven't seen it and so we try and at least reach out to those people say hey come and come and listen at the very least yeah well, this, I mean, it's a neat thing that you can bring a, like a lot of knowledge to new listeners and to new viewers. And that's kind of one of the things I wanted to do with this new mission, this refit team for Standard Orbit, is we wanted to kind of take a look at some of the episodes, especially in season three, that didn't really get a lot of coverage earlier on. And when I wanted to have the both of you come on, we were kind of kicking around it's like, oh, what should we do? What's going to be a good topic? And I think, Megan, I think you suggested the topic that we were going to talk about tonight. And usually we don't go into like real granular level kind of studies of episodes. But the one that you chose, you really seemed really excited about. So tell us a little bit why you wanted to choose this particular episode for season three. Well, we're talking about uh, In Truth Wait, what this, so this one, we have like the hard, one of the hardest titles on this one, right? right? Yeah. Uh, so the episode that we're watching, cause I want to get it right, is, is there in truth, no beauty? It's from season three. Mm-hmm. And, um, this is actually only the second time that I've watched this episode. I watched it two years ago as part of Bree's all the Trek project. And, uh, it's a really great episode. And, it's, it kind of kept you guessing. There's a plot twist towards the end that I didn't see coming at all. And there were elements that built up to it that I thought were really intelligently done. Um, I love 
the guest stars in this episode. And, um, you know, it's definitely got its took place, was filmed in the 60s problems that you can look past or you can sit and analyze, which I'm sure we'll do a little bit of both today. Um, But I don't know, it just sticks in my mind as a really interesting, a really unique episode. They're doing really crazy camera work in this one. Mm -hmm. Um, So it sticks out to me as a really unique episode of um, the original series. So we're going to do a little bit of what you guys do with Educating Geeks. And and the three of us have three completely different perspectives on this episode. We're going to have our own kind of perspective vision POV, you know, of this episode, much like what's happening with the the crazy camera work that's going on. So Alice, why don't you lead us off and give us your interpretation of, because um, for the people that don't know Educating Geeks format, you have the newbie come in and describe their experience with whatever they've just watched. And then we kind of break it down with a little bit more of the expertise. But I think all of us are coming in from various points of not having seen this in a while. And I think some of the finer points of this episode kind of stuck out to us in different ways. (laughs) So please go ahead. (laughs) Well, I mean, the, 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 the basic story, I think, if I can try and do this, is we've got a race of beings that have evolved to such a point they don't have a form. They're formless uh, and super intelligent. And the story goes that if a human views this life form with its with their naked eyes, they go insane. Uh, but uh, they, this obviously with the super intelligence, they have some technology, some information that the uh, Federation would like to have access to. So they're negotiating a deal. So they have an ambassador from this, this species coming on board and with them comes a, uh, what is she? An interpreter? Is that what you guys would call her? Uh, attache maybe? Attache. Yeah, I think attache is appropriate. Um, who uh, is accompanying them and uh, along with an engineer, it's engineering technology they're after. Well, uh, as it turns out, um, the attache really wants to have a uh, intellectually intimate relationship with this life form, uh, but isn't able to. Uh, And shenanigans ensue uh, where then Spock has to mind meld with this creature uh, and more shenanigans ensue. (laughs) (laughs) The shenanigans will be discussed at length. At length in a bit, uh, which in the end leads the attache to obtaining what she's after in in the end. And the big, I mean, the big themes for me, the the obvious ones anyway, are the themes around uh, all of the stuff that's said in the episode about what is beauty and what is ugly and how do we define those things? And what do they mean to us? Um, and I think the episode as itself is either successful or not successful in supporting that as the theme or idea uh, of the episode. And how about you, Megan? Um, your synopsis. Okay, my synopsis. So uh, the Enterprise is welcoming on board uh, a Medusin. The name of this race is the Medusin's ambassador. And they've evolved to a point where, as Alice explained, their physical form is so, according to Kirk, hideously ugly in his voiceover, in his brilliant voiceover, um, that 
for a human to look upon them, they would go insane. Um, so they beam him on board. Spock is the only one that can be in the room with this guy because Vulcans can apparently handle it, uh, but only if they wear the special visor, which is totally cool. Awesome costuming work there. Straight up. Um, and uh, so he's going to be the Enterprise's representative to talk with this guy. Um, he beams over. He lives in a weird plastic box, and his attache comes over with him. She's a human, but she's able to be around him because she's telepathic and trained on Vulcan for many years to be able to control her telepathic abilities. Um, she brings, there's also the engineer that comes over with them so they can discuss, tra- you know, trading this engineering technology that they need. And uh, there's all this jealousy happening between uh, Miranda, who's the attache, right? That was her name. Dr. Miranda Jones. Yeah. Yes, yes, thank Miranda. you, Dr. Miranda Jones. She's jealous of Spock because he can have he can read this Medusan ambassador's mind a little bit better. Or uh, she's jealous of Spock's relationship with the ambassador. The engineer is jealous of Miranda's relationship with the Medusan ambassador. Um, and people go crazy because they look at this guy. Spock gets to mind meld with a weird alien creature. Uh, Bones is hilarious. You get to see Scotty in a really awesome uh, dress uniform that's kilt-like. It's super cool. Um, there's lots of women being shaken in this episode. Um, and a really awesome plot twist, which I really like uh, having to do with Dr. Miranda. Both awesome synopses. And, and the funny thing is, is that you can like overlap the two of them. Yeah. Just like with small details. Does that mean that, um, before I get into mine, does that mean that like, you know, the, the story is pretty cohesive in its narrative and, and fairly straightforward aside from some of the, the finer points in, in the characterizations? I would say that in terms of what happens in the episode, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it comes down to what exactly are they trying to say with this episode and are they successful at it? Yeah. In terms of the larger philosophical notions that they're having. But in terms of the plot points of what happens in the episode, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's structured well in as terms of the, rising action and denouement and things like that. I think it's fine. Yeah. There's a couple points that kind of come out of left, left field, but as far as like a season three episode of the original series, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, if I had to like give my summary of it, just in terms of a technical thing, yes, the, you have the ambassador from the Medusans. He comes up with his attache, Dr. Miranda Jones. They have a very specific agenda that they need to do in terms of changing, uh, exchanging Federation technology and information so that the Medusans can tap into their interstellar uh, navigational network. That's a big thing for the Federation. So they can just travel further and uh, expand humanity's horizons even further into space. But at the same time, there is a rivalry between what happens between Spock, who's a telepath, Vulcan-trained, Dr. Miranda Jones, who's also a telepath and Vulcan-trained, and how they both fit in with what is Colas's agenda. And so you have this interesting kind of uh, the play with these characters uh, that affect the, the end of the story, which really dives deeper into a lot of the philosophical nature of beauty and what you see isn't necessarily what you get and uh, kind of like a lot of duality that's going on within these characters. But before we get into that, there were a couple interesting little tidbits of trivia that I wanted to, to address early on. Alice, in some of your notes, you asked, like, what's up with the Idic? 
Why is the Idic there? And why was that a big... I didn't even know it was called the Idic. I didn't... It was just like that big silver necklace Spock is wearing at the end. I was like, why is he wearing that? I have no... I don't understand what's going on. Was it a gift? Like, I don't get it. <laughs> it was weird. And some of the promotional stuff that I saw and some of the still shots, because there's some great still shots that come from this episode, Spock smiling, uh, because he yeah. has, you know, it's like, wow, I thought I've seen every version of Spock, and there's that really nice grin on his face. Uh, there's also a scene at the very end where he has, you're right, Alice, this giant staff of raw style. You, know, <laughs> you, you, you want to hold that up to the sun and see if it actually, like, you know, forces down a beam of light and shows you the Ark of the Covenant, you know? <laughs> but the, as, the, um, as the story goes, it was a merchandising ploy. Uh, ploy may be too hard a word. It was a merchandising strategy for Gene Roddenberry to tie in this particular design uh, into selling trinkets uh, that are associated with Star Trek. Uh, the story goes that some of the actors, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, weren't really on board with it, but uh, as they had tried to smooth things over during the process of this show, the larger necklace became the smaller pin, as you saw in the dress uh, dinner scene. So yeah. that was... I think that was probably the most um, dramatic behind the scenes story of this episode. Uh, slightly lesser known and um, something that's probably more advantageous to the role of uh, Dr. Miranda Jones was she was not the original choice for uh, this character. Jessica Walter was. Uh, she was an actress that was probably most famously seen in, I believe it's uh, Play Misty for Me with uh, Clint Eastwood. But... Mm. Because she was in Return to Tomorrow in season two, uh, playing another character who had uh, an association with out-of-body experiences and aliens, uh, the director, Ralph Sineski, said, hey, you know what, why don't you come in? Uh, we'll put a brunette wig on you and see how you do as Miranda Jones. And, and to our uh, surprise, you did a fantastic job. So um, let's just jump right into first impressions. Uh, Alice, you have some pretty interesting, heavy-hitting authors that you've referenced here. Keith, Shakespeare. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, especially with her name being Miranda, uh, which is a character from Shakespeare's The Tempest. uh, And then later on, they, when Kolos enters into Spock's body, they have an exchange and and they basically quote Shakespeare from The Tempest. I think it's Act 5. I'm not 100% sure if that's 100% correct, but... I'm so glad you know that because I was wondering where it was from. I knew it was Shakespeare. I just didn't know what it was from. Yeah, it's it's from The Tempest. So I, I'm pretty sure that that... I feel strongly that that must have been intentional, that her name is Miranda. And of course, you know, the story of The Tempest is that she's... Uh, you know, Prospero's daughter and has lived on this island, you know, totally uh, uh, removed from her kind, uh, which I think ties into the character, uh, which we haven't mentioned yet, what the plot twist is around the character. Are we not saying that for a reason or can I say it now? (laughs) I just didn't want to give it away right away. I was trying to be polite. I don't know, like, it's not like we ever care about these things, but whatever <laughs> we, we're, we're, I think we're past this whole spoiler part I think, of okay alright so yeah. I'm in a weird mood today <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Miranda Jones is blind uh, and I think that that along with the um, all of those references I think I, I think that must have been an intentional uh, point to call her character Miranda um, and of course they also mentioned Byron uh, when he Kolos takes over Spock's body and then there's Keats' poem, which is Ode to a Grecian Urn, uh, which is 
very much often in English literature considered to be a, one of the main uh, pieces of work to talk about what is beauty and what is its importance. Um, and then, of course, you can't really talk about The Tempest without talking about Alex Huxley's A Brave New World because she uh, borrows very heavily from it as well. Um, John, the Indian, I think the John, I want to say John, it's something like John or Joe or something really plain like that. Um, also quotes Miranda from, from the Tempest in terms of the other and being sort of isolated and removed from the things around you. So I, I feel like it must've been an intentional reference. That's some pretty serious, like literary heavy hitting that's going on. He's in this. just dropping wow. it like it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> Microphone drop. <laughs> you know, season three, um, it's, it's always been kind of touted as a very, uh, how's, what's the right word to put into it? It's, it's been very uh, trivialized over the course of history uh, because it was so rushed into as a season. They had to pick up what was the, remen- the remnants of season two. And then they had uh, Betty Jo Trimble's letter campaign to get Star Trek back on the air. So a lot of things were kind of rushed into place. And sometimes the stories worked really well. Sometimes they didn't. Megan, do you think when you were watching this at the very end of the episode that this falls into that season three trap of it being a rushed script or something that was just forced into production? Or do you think that it was actually able to play out a very good and cohesive narrative with, with very fleshed out characters? Well, if it was rushed, I don't think it, I don't think it shows. I think the storyline is, you know, like the whole bit where they're instantly transported outside of the borders of the galaxy. And that creates this plot point where, then Spock has to mind meld with the Medusan. That is probably the more out of left field plot point in the whole episode. But even that works. I think I love Miranda's character from the moment she came on board. Uh, I was just, I loved her whole character design. Um, I, I just think it's a really well done episode. It's a compelling story. It's an interesting story and it's fun to watch. So, I mean, to me, it's just a great episode. It's definitely not like a season three stinker at all. And honestly, there's a lot of episodes in season three that I really enjoy. So I I have to say, this is one of those things that I, this is one of the reasons why I've sort of stopped voraciously consuming information about films and things before I watch them the first time. So I, I think I didn't really realize that there was so much disparaging uh, stuff about season three uh, before hearing it from you, Norman, and on on Trek FM. So, not having that, you know, I go into it without being set up to think that it's bad, right? So I go into it totally fresh, and you know, like I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I did think it was kind of like there there were some issues in terms of tying things together for me, but overall, I'm like Megan. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, but now I have this coloring in my head. So if I go watch other season three things, now I'm going to constantly be going like, oh, well, is this the one that's a stinker? Is this the one that's bad? Is this what everyone's talking about? It's like I've now I've been, I've got this, this seed in my head to think yeah. that season three of Star Trek is bad in some way. Um, I mean, so I'm... Yeah, I mean, there's a stigma that's always kind of been 
hovering over season three. I'm not sure if it's completely fair. I mean, every season in Star Trek from 1969 all the way to 2005 have their ups and downs. I think that's fair to say. I mean, not everyone's going to be perfect. (laughs) Seasons one through two of Next Generation. So, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, there's some really good stuff in season two. Come on. There are. No, there there are. It's it's just every season, you know, it's just um, you get what you you want to get out of it, right? Right, right. Yeah. And Alice, I think that experience that you talked about is exactly what I experienced when I was watching season three. I know it's what Brie experienced. I think if you go back and watch one of her videos covering season three, she's like, oh, it looks like they have a really great budget and they're really using their budget really well. Um, Because she she didn't do that research. She didn't want it to color her opinions of the episodes. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you know, if they were all the budget problems that they were uh, supposedly having at this point, I think this episode is a really great example of a way that you can use a dwindling budget to really good purpose and really good use by getting creative with the story, by getting creative with your special effects, by getting creative with your camera angles. Um, And it really makes this episode just really, really fun to watch. Well, you brought those up. Let's talk about those. The camera angles on this show were some that I've never seen before or since. Yeah. The original series. Yeah. I mean, they use a fisheye lens. Like, when did they ever use fisheye in another episode of the original series? And, I mean, I know they've done it a couple times in, in subsequent series like Next Gen and, and DS9, but usually, you know, it's for, it's just like here, it's for dramatic effect, but I don't think I'd seen them do that before. Usually when Chekhov goes crazy, they'll use a fisheye lens. <laughs> yeah, they'll throw the fisheye on. <laughs> you know, yeah. make a timer and mirror, mirror, something like that. When he goes absolutely nuts, they'll do that. But yeah. 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 And then, you know, they like, we were talking before on the other side of the room, we were talking, well, that's a different show, but we were talking before we started the room. <laughs> um, but we were talking right before we started taping and they shot from inside a turbo lift. And when does that ever happen? You get this really weird kind of claustrophobic, really angled shot of what's happening on the bridge. And it makes you feel kind of claustrophobic and weird, but it works really well for the scene that they were doing it. Um, And it just made the episode visually interesting in a new way. Claustrophobia. I mean, that's a really good way of describing like what the camera was making you feel because like, it's almost as if they're trying to make sure that you're feeling what's inside everyone's head. Yeah, exactly. Like you're in a fishbowl and you're kind of like suffering from like what I'm suffering from right now, like a little bit of a sinus <laughs> pressure. <laughs> <headache>. <laughs> so did the, um, Alice, let me ask you something. Did the uh, whole effect with Colos work for you? Did you feel like he was this completely ugly entity energy being that if you saw him out of his encounter suit, a la Kosh in Babylon five, <laughs> <laughs> Right, I had to get that in there. You did. We knew you were going to do it. <laughs> yeah, but if, um, if if you saw that, it's like you, you saw that for the first time, and you're like, that doesn't really kind of uh, paint me the picture of this guy that would make me go insane if I saw it. So you have this really nice note here. Does does what was uh, that was driving the narrative explore the question of beauty is good or ugly is bad? Right. Yeah, well, I, I think it would be hard. As a matter of fact, I think it would be near impossible uh, for a human to come up with what a human could see that would drive them insane. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's like a self-ending prophecy or something. Like, I think that it would be near impossible in our own minds to come up with what that should look like. Right. So I think they rely heavily on, uh, you know, what they've done in the past. So, you know, it's these sparkly, you know, 
images. So did I think it was in- ugly? No, I was like, I'm a girl that gets easily distracted by shiny Sparkles. things. So I was like, you know, it's just a pretty shiny thing. Um, but, uh, but I don't know that they, you know, that question of, they bring it up at the dinner table, right? About we have this propensity to think that beautiful things are good and ugly things are evil, just like we think thin things are good and fat things are, you know, bad or thin things are successful and fat things aren't, whatever. Um, And I don't know, actually, if they thoroughly and completely address that question because that's then also caught up in um, what we see with our eyes versus what we emotionally connect with, you know, because I think that's another issue that they deal with, uh, which I think they do a slightly better job of, of talking about and dealing with that because Miranda's so anxious to have an intimately intellectual relationship with Kolos, whereas everyone else is interested with having a physical romantic relationship with her beauty, whereas she wants the beauty of the mind and everyone else wants her physical beauty. Um, So I think they do a a little bit more of a successful job exploring that uh, for me. You know, that's an interesting point because the person that she actually clashes with the most from that ideological perspective in this episode is Spock. And in many ways, I always felt that she was kind of emulating the Vulcan way you know, she was almost in this path of Kulinar where she's one step away from completely driving all the emotion out of her being so that she can completely achieve a logical state so that she can actually have a relationship in that sense with Kolos. So I always thought that she would, she was really just uh, more of a kindred spirit to Spock, but she didn't really feel that way. Uh, maybe that was the emotion driving her in that sense. But why do you think that is? You would think that they would be a little bit more of a better pair and would work well together than say, any of the other cast members like Kirk trying to work with her or Bones trying to work with her. It just seemed to me that there was this, there was a rivalry there that didn't quite work for me because they are both very good and very similar as characters. Uh, Megan, what do you think about that? Yeah, I kind of agree with you. That might be one of the um, pl- points in, in her character that I don't think they necessarily did well because it felt like they couldn't make up their minds, right? at one point you can see them being really kindred spirits. And then in the next scene, she's getting jealous because he can see Kolos. And there's that great scene right at the beginning when he greets Kolos for the first time and is able to look upon him and he leaves and she demands, what does he see when he looks at you? And you don't understand what she's upset about. And it makes it seem like later on when you discover she's blind, it makes it seem like she's jealous because he is sighted, but that doesn't continue through this, through the episode. Um, and then, yeah, she's jealous of his relationship with Kolos, but it just, it doesn't seem like it would be the kind of thing that she would be jealous about. Mm-hmm. I guess I took it to be that she, she is human. Uh, you know, and I, that- you know, that's a good point. You know, she is human. So as much as she would like to believe that she can t- tamp out all of her human uh, emotions, she she can't, more so than Spock is only half human. Um, and I, I, it's interesting what you're talking about, Megan, because there's two things. There's the that the intellectual jealousy that I was talking about in terms of Spock being able to have that kind of relationship with her, then she's not sighted. So she also can't, she also can't have that 
relationship either. So other people, so Spock's like doubly special and has two right. things that she can't have, you know, the both the intellectual relationship, nor can she look upon him because she's blind and her sensor array, I guess, can't sense him. Um, <laughs> right. I was like, does that even make sense? I don't okay. Know. Uh, but, but you know, because she also has that whole speech about pity and pity yeah. being, you know, the, the the human emotion she despises the most, which we then learn probably is because she was blind and people probably took quote unquote pity on her. Um, so I think she just can't get away from those human emotions have betrayed her. And I think that's why she wants to tamp them down as much as possible. Yeah. Actually you saying that, I think that's kind of uh, the head cannon I had built that made it work for me. <laughs> <laughs> You know, she brought up a really interesting thing about um, the the net, the sensory net that she was wearing. And, Isn't and that how, thing cool? That was one of the coolest ideas I think I have seen in probably a long time in the original yeah. series. Yeah. I mean, well, and I had been admiring that costume design just from the moment that she came on board. I thought, oh my gosh, that's an awesome costume design. And then come to find out, it's totally a part of her character and a part of the story. So how awesome is that, that the costume gets its own plot point? <laughs> that's so cool. Was anyone else thinking that the little thing that she wore in her hair was like a little camera, like a She's... computer camera that she was also using as part of her array? To me, it's like her swan neck. It was like this giant neural net, you know, kind of like a positronic brain, but like on clothing. So if you, it was kind of like data before data. You could, she could collect all this information. I thought it was so smart. I just wanted to see how it kind of yeah. plugged into, into her system because that's the plug. That's the plug on top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that thing on top of her head. <laughs> so is that the 23rd century GoPro? Yeah, right yes, there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it we was, figured it out. I mean, do you think it was like, um, I, I don't think it was, I mean, I think it's great that it was a plot point, but it was something that she really had to depend on yeah. as, as something that, that drove information into her, but not necessarily feeling. So it's, it's interesting that she, she almost has like this barrier that she can't quite cross. Mm. And everyone else, because of uh, her ability to, basically, she was a trained telepath through our training in Vulcan. Everyone seems, I don't know, so strangely drawn to her in that weird, I don't know how to write the male characters in this episode so correctly way. She's so vulnerable. But they know that she's so strong at the same time. So let's talk about um, a larger elephant in the room that was that dinner scene. Because there's some great stuff going on in that dinner scene, but there's also some interesting and problematic things going on in that dinner scene, too, that didn't really inform a lot about our beloved characters as as much as it did uh, how how they didn't really handle, I think, how good and how strong Dr. Miranda Jones was to the story. Uh, I think it kind of detracted from her a little bit and almost made her force the perception in a certain way oh yeah well yeah i mean they basically it it, for me it boils down to this career versus beauty like so there's this whole underlying uh sentiment in this episode which is that if you're really really smart you shouldn't be beautiful may i may i quote uh kirk's on this this is going to preface probably this a a little bit more uh, kirk said I think most of us are attracted by beauty and repelled by ugliness. One of the last of our prejudices at the risk of sounding prejudiced, gentlemen, here's the beauty. So <laughs> He says that, but there's also that, that thing that she, they're, 
that she wants to rob the world, them, of her beauty yeah. by pursuing her career, which is going off and being the attache to Kolos, mm-hmm. right? So they're- t- A they're- world of ugly creatures too. That's almost the bigger offense. You know, and so it's looking back on it with a- 2016 feminist eye, uh, you know, they're basically making that argument against, you know, a woman should be for a man's beautiful, you know, should be able to be there and be beautiful for a man to enjoy versus going off to pursue her career. Um, That said, she does get the good comeback against Bones because Bones, you know, how could you rob us of that beauty? And she you know, makes that statement about how could a guy who loves life, you know, deal with death all day or whatever. I, so yeah, they, I love really, that. Yeah. They give her a nice comeback. What I also loved about that scene is that you, you're kind of like, I was actually, you know, transposing that onto uh, Pulaski saying that to Bones because they always made that point where Pulaski was kind of like spiritually the successor to Bones. So yeah. those two banter back and forth. I was like, that was brilliant and a really nice um, retort on her part. So yes. I'm sorry, Megan, I totally interrupted you though. Oh no. Um, I, I mean, I totally agree. That's one. I love her comeback to that. And I think Alice really hits the nail on the head is that, you know, these, these guys are offended that this woman who they deem beautiful is removing herself from their sight and going to live among what they deem to be ugly. And that's like a huge offense to all of them. Um, And Kirk even says later when he's in the flower garden with her that, you know, she looks better in the moonlight and she deserves to be among beautiful things. And, you know, he's still trying to convince her not to go and do what she wants to do with her life. He literally says something along the lines of don't be your career, be a woman for a change. That's what the engineer says. The engineer said that. Yeah. Oh, it's the engineer. I know somebody says it to her. Their fight. Yeah. Don't be your career. Yeah. And I love that scene too, because like, He's so upset with her. He's he's he complains that he's proposed to her five or six different ways, and why doesn't she get it? And it's like, dude, she said no five no or means six no. times. <laughs> no means no. You need to get over it. And she straight up says to him too, "I've tried to be honest with you. I can't yeah. love you the way that you want me to. I'm not attracted to you. I'm not into you, man. Like, get over it." And he wants to kill people because she won't do what he wants her to do. So there's like all of these really great uh, power struggles happening in this episode. And it's one of the things I love about it. Which I think is really interesting if you look at it from the the point of Kolos being so ugly that he drives people insane. She is so beautiful that she's She's driven this guy insane. Yeah. Which I think is a very interesting kind of a parallel that they're playing. That is so great. I hadn't even put that together because he is thinking about killing people before he even looks at Kolos just because she's rejected him. That's a great point. It's neat that you're seeing a lot of these different subtexts really come to the surface with each one of these characters because each one of them is defining beauty in a very specific way. Mm, yeah. Kirk is defining it very outwardly. Uh, so is Bones. Spock is doing it intellectually. But also there's the rage inside of, of the engineer. Uh, and Colas is almost kind of like a spectator in this at this stage. Like yeah. whatever, it's, they're, they're almost kind of supplanting their internalization of this issue onto Kolos. It's like, well, what happens if we actually see and hear from Kolos, which Spock does? And I think that 
the most interesting observation that Carlos had once he was mind melded with Spock was, you are all so alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a great because, speech. Mm-hmm, That's a great little soliloquy. You're all seeing things that really are blocking what needs to be seen. Yeah. You know, you're, you're all have this filter in front of you, i.e. kind of like that filter that Spock wears and that anyone wears to prevent them from going insane. You, you lift the veil of, of this uh, whatever stigma that you're seeing things through. And if you allow actual, real, genuine, either kindness or compassion or beauty to actually enter into your psyche, what would that do to you? If you can't accept that, yeah, you know, that would, that would make somebody who's completely like full of hatred break because they're like, I can't accept beauty. I can't accept kindness or love. It's not me. Conversely, somebody who's like, so beautiful, like, what? Well, I can't accept this ugliness into my life. So it, it really kind of plays on what Miranda was saying, like, what defines ugly? What defines beautiful? How do we have the right to be able to put that limitation on things and I think a lot of that, what you were saying before, with all these different interactions, really comes to the forefront for the title of the show. Yeah. yeah. Well, and one of the things that you just made me think of, too, is once Kolos and Spock have melded, you really, you, that's when we as the audience finally get to experience the character of Kolos and what a beautiful spirit Kolos is, right? He's jovial and willing to help in any way that he can and curious yeah he's very curious he's he's just a beaut and he's just totally taken by what the human experience is in the few minutes that he has with it and you know it's this creature that everyone is so obsessed with how ugly it is but once it's able to express itself in a way that humanity can understand it's a beautiful life form and very eloquent and i love how he talks about how limiting uh the human language is Mm -hmm. uh and there's just so much to love in just what like three minutes that he's a character acting on screen and uh leonard nimoy got some fun stuff going with that too yeah Yeah, he's got big teeth he does have which i didn't really ever (laughs) notice before yeah no i love his his performance in in that thing but so here's the question then okay if if Kolos, if it's not the fact that Kolos is quote unquote ugly that drives people insane when seeing him, what is it? That drives people insane? Yes, when they experience Kolos. Oh, I, I think it goes all the way back to what you're talking about with kind of like the Greek literature and all of the all of that legend of staring into the abyss and the abyss staring back at you. Mm. That's a good that's a good sort of uh, like infinite experience, infinite knowledge, infinite uh, understanding is so overwhelming that also, you can't and, take it all in and process it. I.e., there, I mean, there is a reason why there's a lot of the, uh, the, the IDIC iconography that's like kind of forced in this episode, but it is infinite diversity and infinite combinations. We see that a lot in even how we interact on social media and how things are misinterpreted in certain ways and how we can't really connect in that way through digital space, because that's one interpretation of many that we're reading into what we are experiencing in even our debates, the way we type, the way we uh, text, that stuff can be interpreted in infinite ways. You don't understand the emotional connection to it. So once you do that, you set yourself on a path and tone of misunderstanding. And 
when everything you, you interpret is your own subtext because you have no other subtext to use. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. whatever is inside of you is being projected back at you because that's all that there is. So when you see that in Colos, it's represented, it's basically the reverse. It's a, it's a mirror image of yourself. And that's something that would drive you insane because there's nothing else there to add. There's mm. no other quality in that. And I think that when people see that, when they stare at that mirror image of themselves, they don't know what to do. Uh, there's nothing else there to to build on. You can't hide behind your your defenses anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. I like so, it. So what an Colos. existential episode. I love it. No. Well, yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, I want to put on like a fishbowl. So like my people. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but that's, I think that's the great thing about being able to see this particular episode from three different perspectives, because that's what kind of like understanding and interpreting beauty in anything is it's about how you define it through your own perspective. When, if we look at the same piece of art right now, Alice and Megan and I, we would get three completely different interpretations of it because it's based on who we are. Mm -hmm. But if we only get the feedback of ourselves in that picture, then there's nothing left for us to process. And that's the end. So essentially when you're looking at yourself, you're looking at the end, you're looking at a very binary line as opposed to the multitude of voices that Colas is saying, like, you know, there's so much beauty and there's so much richness, but there's also so much loneliness. And that's something that I think that he found just tragic about the, the, the limitations of humanity. And I think that's something that they could have worked with if they just gave him more of an ability to express himself out there. And it would have been yeah. to build on, don't you think? I mean, how do you see that being built like in, in a, it would have been neat to experience the Medusans in other series. Don't you? I know. I really wish that someone would go back oh. and revisit these guys because they're so interesting. That's a very good point. So here's my other question. Okay. So if so, was Kolos also a telepath? Yes. So in his little box. So in his little box, mm -hmm. he is... He is telepathying, I don't know how you say that word, into all of the minds that are on the Enterprise? Yeah, I think so. Because otherwise, then what does he need Miranda for? And why does he have to mind meld with Spock? I mean, we, we need him to mind meld with Spock because we need to talk to him. Mm -hmm. But if he's already, in a sense, interpreting everything around him, what does he need Miranda for? Well, I my my headcanon on this is that the telepathy is more that he can read their thoughts, but he can't project his own thoughts into their minds. So he does. So Miranda's his his voice, his translator. Yeah, she speaks for him, which is another interesting thing then to make her blind. So they all they, they right. each have a sense, right? That right, it's the yin and yangy kind. It's kind of like uh, the episode of Next Gen where that one the deaf guy has his chorus and yeah. they serve a different emotional purpose as his chorus members. It right. makes me think of that a lot. Right, right, right. No, I, I I was thinking, yeah, the guy with the big red beard. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, oh, was it silence has no lease? Is that it? Uh, oh man, we just, I know it's season two because we just covered it on Educating Geeks. I can't remember what it's called. I'm going to see if I can find it. Or where silence has lease or something like that. Something about silence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good question, Alice, because um, uh, telepathy to that extent hasn't really been explored that much in the original series. Not in the sense of like um, the way that uh, a full Betazoid 
would be able to feel yeah. like the emotional content of something and how Troy was able to, I guess, feel certain ways and interpret it in certain ways. But sometimes, and uh, Babylon 5, because I always go back to Babylon 5, they, uh, they had a really interesting similar relationship between Ambassador Kosh and his telepath, Lita Alexander. And they explained- Okay, wait, 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 wait. Am I spoiling something? No, Kosh is the one that's in the big- Encounter suit. Okay. Yeah. Like All right. Box. I'm with you now. Like okay. Hollis's yep. box. And okay. uh, their relationship was very much like an ambassador and an attache. And the attache was also used uh, for the purposes of guile because the ambassador doesn't want necessarily everybody to know what he's up to. So he sends you know, his messenger along the way saying that, you know, this is what we need to focus on at, uh, while the ambassador kind of focuses on other things. So there's a little bit of a, a misdirection there. I don't think that's the case with Dr. Jones. But sometimes, like, telepaths do need a medium to speak through, especially if uh, the issue is they can't really get close to, especially humans in this case, or else they would go crazy. And then his power would never be able to connect. So, but I think more along the lines that they're really kind of using her as an example of let's, let's, let's cast off uh, the physical aspect of their relationship and let's go more towards the intellectual aspect of our relationship, especially since she's blind, which um, drives the point home a little bit more, but, this, but it also kind of drives the fact that everyone around her interacts in a completely um, contrary way because she is so beautiful, but she doesn't even really know it herself. Yeah. Right. Although we don't know when she went blind, but That's she certainly true. doesn't know what she looks like currently. Certainly. I wonder if her sensor net can tell her. That's what I was wondering too. I bet it can. And she has some idea what she looks like. GoPro, sure. tell me what's going on. <laughs> and I would also say that that in not, which I, I don't even know how to say this without it coming out sounding not how I want it to, <laughs> but not being the kind of woman who men typically turn their heads when I walk into a room, that kind of thing. But I think women for women who do experience that i think having that sense of having that reaction from men would tell you whether or not quote unquote you are right yeah in she most knows. men's eyes beautiful she you knows know? and also you know she's got the telepathy going too so she might not know exactly what she looks like but she knows she's a stone cold fox like that's right they're thinking about my butt they're thinking yeah. about my butt she, she knows what her assets are um, before, we get, before we get too far away from it that next gen episode is loud as a whisper Oh, so wrong. Fire and, me from uh, this generation. Yeah, sorry, dude. You got it wrong. Um, and I got to just really quickly give him kudos because the guy who played Reva, the deaf character, was played by a deaf, deaf actor named Howie Sago. So, uh, you know, we need more of that. We need more of that. And it's a great episode and everyone should go watch it. Anyway, back to uh, the episode at hand. So I'm going to ask you guys uh, the big question, and it kind of ties everything together. Um, and Alice, I think this is a really, really nice way to sum up and, uh, and, and see if we were still on path here, or if the episode was still on path towards the end. Uh, the end message, the glory of creation is in its infinite diversity and the way our difference combined to create meaning and beauty. Did they tell a story that led to the message or does the path not match with the destination? I have to say that this is when I heard that and it's such a set piece, you know, like it's clearly a big important speech that they give at the end, you know, like it's so obvious. I listened to that and I was like, 
Is that what they were trying to say? I'm not sure that's what I heard. Um, but you talking about the the necklace and everything made me think like, was that just again a, a sort of a mouthpiece for this other activity that Gene Roddenberry was in, involved in? Um, because when I when I listened to it in the episode, I really was sort of like, huh. Okay, I, I guess I can see that as being the overarching important point of the episode, but I'm not 100% sure. How about you, Megan? What do you think about the summation of that? Because that was Spock's kind of idic moment, and that was like the yeah. really first time where we were really brought to, uh, to a finer point about infinite diversity and infinite combinations and Gene Roddenberry's search for how we all relate in some way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there for sure. I mean, um, we've we've got this weird Medusan character that everyone keeps saying is so hideous and makes you go crazy and they can't stop talking about Miranda's beauty. Um, I think what you see, especially at the end, right, we see Spock combining with this Medusan to create something unique. And we find out as Miranda is leaving that she has achieved a deeper connection with um, Kolos as well. And so you're kind of creating a new form of beauty. I think it's a little bit of a stretch, but it's kind of there. So I'm gonna get, I'm gonna, this is going to be a, probably a tougher question. And it's probably a this is what I love about Star Trek because you can actually really go deep into the philosophy of things if you really, 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 really want to. But I, I want to put, because you guys are great and, and I love you guys so much and, and I want to really see if I can embarrass you here. <laughs> in the title, Is There in Truth No Beauty? What is the truth here in this episode? What is the truth that they're trying to get to? What is the truth that they're trying to get to? Is there in truth, the truth, no beauty? So what is the truth? Is it that if you really look into yourself that you, you get that reflection of what I was talking about? Or is it just everything is based on the misconception of perception? To me, I think it's about getting past, mm. moving past that initial um, physical nature of things, right? Because what they, what the guys can't get past with Miranda is how beautiful she is. And therefore she shouldn't be pursuing this career path that she's pursuing. And Kolos is so hideous that they have a hard time understanding who his people are and what technological advances they can be bringing to the table. I think they could have explored that second thing a little bit more. Uh, I think the character that embodies that the most is Bones because he's like, oh, you know, they're so ugly. There's no way that they could be so technologically advanced. And, you know, that was during that dinner scene. And it, it really ultimately ends up revolving more about around Miranda and her beauty. Um, and I think the truth is they're trying to move past your initial observation and get to what's really underneath. Mm -hmm. So I think I could, uh, I could go down that path with you, Megan. And if you, you know, I'm a, I'm an all perspectives are valid kind of a person. Um, so if, if the, tr if there is absolute truth in something, which means that there's only one right thing, like I, I don't believe that, right? So then it's about perception and, you know, that 
what we were talking about earlier and that you are, I, I can only bring to the table who I am and mm. I'm the sum of my experiences and how I was raised and where I grew up and the, the things that I've been through or not experienced, whatever. Um, so if you're going to, if you're going to call the truth, the singular thing that must be this only this one way, then there is no beauty in that. What's beautiful is that we're all, bringing to the table our own interpretation and our own perception. And that's, what's beautiful. Mm. No, I, I like both of your stances on that. And I think that's probably at the heart of trying to interpret what's going on with this episode, because there, there are huge brushstrokes philosophically that are being painted here. But when you take a look at these words, like truth is something that has to be absolute. Yeah. Is that uh, beauty is something that's interpretive is that so if you have an absolute truth can there be interpretation upon something that's absolute and you can keep going back and forth with that like and we, we could do this for hours you know <laughs> and, and i would love to <laughs> um, but in in, in the in the, uh, in the aspect of this particular episode i think that because everything is either an externalization and internalization of these forces it really depends on whose point of view you accept the most yeah. And whether it's not a valid point of view or not a valid point of view, that's not really kind of like, we're not questioning the, we're trying, we're not trying to put a, um, uh, a measure on these, you know, it's, it's what do you accept as being more towards who you are as opposed to trying to force an ideal on someone else. And that's, in my opinion, that's always been kind of like the more successful nature of Star Trek, not having a right or wrong, but how it really just, informs what's happening during the course of the events of the episode. So in my opinion, I'm going to, this is the last question I'm going to ask you guys, in my opinion, that is more of what is uh, successful about season three. What do you guys think? Does, does that bring you back to what Star Trek is like the original series means to you? Well, to me, Star Trek has always been about discovering new forms of life and having appreciation for them. Um, and, you know, I'm a next gen kid. So that's, that's what it's always meant to me. And I think that this episode appeals to me because of that. Um, because we've got this weird, crazy new alien life form that you can really develop an appreciation for. Um, and it makes us question what human, what it means to be human, right? It makes us think about the nature of ourselves. And to me, that's always, those are always the best episodes of Star Trek. It doesn't matter what series, what season you're watching. And this show, this episode definitely does all that for me. I, gosh, I, I, I grew up watching the original series in the 70s. Uh, and what Star Trek meant to me as when I was growing up, I think what it means to me now is what, what Megan just very, very eloquently s stated. But I think when I was growing up and watching it under the lens of my parents and hearing my parents' commentary on Star Trek as we would watch it as a family, uh, was that bringing to the forefront issues of the day, uh, much like many programs of today's television do, and listening to my parents have a conversation like we're having right now about uh, the, the meaning and the point to the stories that were, were being told. And of course, my mother's comments on the costumes, but... Um, <laughs> 
And Sorry, I, I completely forgot. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. I completely. <laughs> <forgot>. <laughs> um, so, and I think this episode does that, that quite nicely, which I think is, you know, illustrated by the depth of the conversation we were able to have about it. You know, I'd actually like to uh, open this up to our friends over there at Metatrex, Zachary Fruling and Mike Morrison, because I think this would make an outstanding continuation of the conversation because this really is uh, at many times an existentialist moment for a lot of the characters in, in exploring these values because existentialism doesn't have a finite point. You know, it's just, right. a, it's either the inner space study or the outer space study of oneself and one's belief systems. So I think that would make a, a fantastic continuation of this. And I didn't, I'm sorry, Alice, I completely missed that we were going to talk about how fabulous the dress uniforms were. So oh. let's take a moment about that. <laughs> I do. I just, I, am, I always feel very sad when people talk so poorly about the original series dress uniforms. And I love them. They're so I think cool. They're amazing. And I think they're very dressy and they fit very well. And I, I always love an episode when I get to see the TOS dress uniforms. Well, and they got so creative with them too. And I love what they did with Scotty's. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got a kilt on for Christ's sake. I mean, he looks amazing. How fun is that? Well, here's another question and something maybe we can tackle a, a little bit later. So Scotty's representing his heritage as a, you know, as a Scotsman. What if they had um, a Buddhist officer? Would That'd be, be awesome. His, you know, would he be able to wear his, uh, his robes? Yeah. I would hope so. That yeah. would be pretty Maybe cool. Could, I forget what they're called. The tie, the they're more like skirts, um, or or like the uh, East Indians wear, and then they could wear the dress coat over the. The, the skirt pants. I, did, I forget what they're called. I think that'd be kind of neat cosplay. I'm Filipino, so uh, we have a, a traditional. Uh, almost kind of like a tuxedo. It's called the Barong Tagalog and uh, oh. it's traditionally made out of banana fibers. And I was like, I should totally cosplay that with a Starfleet emblem. on. That would be so cool. That would be very awesome. I could do that in Las Vegas. I'd love to see it. If you do that, you have to send us pictures because I would love to see that. I just thought it'd be an interesting thing. You know, we're talking about, um, I mean, Scott is the only one who kind of like represents that way. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. very true. But it also makes him really badass when he does it. So, well, but, you know, it's not the only time that we get to see people representing their cultures with their uniforms because Worf gets to wear his. I'm gonna sorry, Klingon fans. I don't know the official word for his sash. What is? I'm. Uh, sorry. They call it a baldric. I think. Thank you. Yeah. But yeah, he gets to wear his baldric. Right. So I. That's one of the things I really liked about the show too. Is there's representations of people's home cultures, which I think is really cool. Okay. Because apparently on Betazoid, they like to wear cheerleader outfits. Just saying. At times, nothing at all. Just yeah, usually they're just Nike. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we go, um, Alice or Megan, any final thoughts on the episode? Uh, my only final thought uh, in regards to the title is I just think someone really wanted to quote George Herbert. Because <laughs> 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 it's a line from his poem, Jordan, uh, Jordan 1. It's like the second line of his poem. And it's yeah. a great, it's a beautiful poem. Uh, yeah, they were very literary. I mean, they really literary. did make a lot of references. Yeah. In this one. So good work. I, I love this episode. This is a great season three episode. Don't let the fact that it's part of season three throw you off. Like, 
get over the season three stuff. Just watch some of them. Some of these are really great episodes and this is one of them. Would you throw a rating system on top of this one? Oh, um, I'd give it three out of three sensor web dresses. Snap. (laughs) (laughs) I would probably give it 3.5 sensor web dresses out of five sensor web dresses. Mm. Or or how about 3.5 dress uniforms out of five dress uniforms? There you go. Yeah, you know, I I really do like this episode a lot. It makes you think uh, sometimes a little too much, maybe. Uh, <laughs> and in so many different ways, but... That's, hey, there are some great, really silly fight scenes in this one, too. So oh, yeah. Uh, there's a lot yes. to that. Right. So, and thank you for bringing that up because it helps my rating <laughs> system. I think I'm going to put this at maybe 3.5 fishbowls out of five. There you go. On this. Uh, maybe <laughs> push it to four uh, if it's late at night when I actually do feel like my head's in a fishbowl because... <laughs> Sinusitis. So, <laughs> Alice, Megan, it was a pleasure having you oh. on the show. Um, Thanks for having us. Yeah, so, it's always a joy talking with you, Norm. You're so welcome. And our the uh, the transporter room is open to you at any time. We would love to have you back with when Ken and Mr. Ataz are available. And uh, that was a fantastic discussion. But yeah, it hasn't been the only thing that we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, the 602 Club. You know, I think part of it has to do with, yeah, and that is a good point. You know, you could uh, draw maybe more of a parallel between Roger Moore and Cary Grant than you could Cary Grant and Sean Connery. Literary Treks. One of my issues I had with this whole series is if, as a graphic novel, I was expecting one continuous story. And each chapter was an issue that was separate from each other. Meta Trex. Wait, your your idea of Ryzen Ryza is like Fairhaven. Yeah, I, I like the I like the quiet, peaceful. I mean, every time I watch one of those, I don't want to see those Fairhaven uh, characters in bikinis. I'm sorry. Women at Warp. The only way that she can get through the trauma is remembering what her real story is, and that's getting this puppy home and taking care of it. I wish that Captain Jamie Nelson said, let's get this puppy home. (laughs) And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So if you'd like to hear all the different topics that we've been talking about on Trek FM, you can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows, phone. And of course, you can also stream us and download the MP3 file from our website at Trek FM and grab the RSS link there as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit that subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find Trek FM and all the other shows as they search iTunes and help us increase our visibility for new listeners. So you guys are familiar with Patreon.com and what Patreon.com is that it gives us here at the network the ability to connect with our fans and allow them to support us through this program. If you go to Patreon.com slash TrekFM, you'll see why that your help is so important to us. We are a volunteer run network, very much like kind of public broadcasting. We kind of really are helped out by donations. And if you see the patreon.com slash trekfm donations page, you can see all the different ways that you can support us through being an associate producer and sponsoring shows to allow such fine and incredibly intelligent minds like Alice and Megan come in here on the show, commercial free. And it's really important that we can connect in that way with your fandom. So please visit patreon.com slash trekfm. We have this great program also that Aaron Harvey runs along with Christopher Jones. It's called The Roundtable. Uh, Will Wynn also runs that program. It happens twice a month at the $15 level. And you can come in and actually test out podcasting because 
If you think we sound good, you may sound just as good, if not better, and find the true talent inside of you. So whoever's career that I launch in radio in the next 10 years, that's thanks to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can send me your residual check uh, at the address that I give you at the end of the show. So <laughs> patreon.com people, help us out, and uh, we'd be happy for it, and we'd be glad that you do. So, and always to our associate producers that help us here on Standard Orbit, Renee Roberts and Richard Rutledge, thank you so much for your support through patreon.com, and thank you for sponsoring this show. You can find Renee on Twitter at mres underscore 1701, and Richard at rut8972. Another way that you can show your support for the network is to go to redbubble.com, type Trek FM in the search field, and you can see all of the great apparel that you can wear in support of the programs that we have here on Trek FM. You can find the legendary Andy's Ninja Cat. That was designed by Aaron Harvey and also inspired by the Standard Orbit. You can also find all the different Trek FM logos and mugs and iPhone covers and all those types of ways to wear your fandom and support us on redbubble.com. Just type in Trek FM in the search field. So if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. You can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us, please leave us a voice message. I love voice messages and I get none. I'd love <laughs> to hear your voice message. Please, please, please leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash trekfm. You can also find us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm and the Babel Conference type Babel in the search field on Facebook. That's our listeners page where I post daily. Uh, I'm sure Alice and Megan also keep up on what's happening with the Babel Conference uh, when they can. And yeah, we do. With that, with me. And, um, <laughs> and it's just a great way for all the listeners to be able to interact there. And some of those uh, debates get pretty interesting and, and very thoughtful and heartfelt. Indeed. <laughs> so please go to Babel, B-A-B-E-L on Facebook. Whew, that's a mouthful. So let's get to talking to you guys and how they can get in touch with you through your individual social media contacts and especially through Educating Geeks. So Alice, let's start with you first. Sure. Uh, I am uh, on the internets at A-L-C-B-K-R, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest. That's, that's how you can find me. Uh, and of course, at educatinggeeks.com, uh, you can learn more about me uh, on the Geek Coast page. And uh, you can find me at Meg Calcote, C-A-L-C-O-T-E. Uh, you'll find me at that handle on Instagram. Uh, you'll find me at that handle on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and I'm on Snapchat too. I think if you just search Meg Calcote, I'll come up. Um, and if you want to find Educating Geeks, we are at Educating Geeks, all one word. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, and I feel like I'm forgetting one. No, you're not. I'm not. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's where you can find us. Uh, and if you want to type in our Facebook web address, it's facebook.com slash educating geeks. <laughs> Thank you, Austin. Thank you, Megan. Um, Thank you, you can Farm. Find- you can find Ken here on the, on the uh, network. He's always on the Babel Conference, and I don't think he has any other social. So please get in touch with him because we need your stump Mr. Atos questions. <laughs> because he loves sending out T-shirts to you, the lucky few who have actually won against Mr. Atos. And speaking of Mr. Atos, you can also find Jeffrey here on the network, and you can find him on Twitter at Harlander 
and through trekopedia.com, which is uh, his passion for Star Trek in digital and online form. So please check that out, Trekopedia, that's with an I. And you can also find me here on the network, and you can find me on Twitter at Starfighter1701. And I'm just uh, so glad that I was able to have Alice and Megan on the show here because I love being able to hear so many different perspectives about the original series, and I just feel incredibly fortunate that you were able to make the time to be here with me tonight. So thank you so much. You're welcome, Norm. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thanks for having us, Norm. So thanks everyone for listening and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>